What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from a bunker in the heart of the Ozarks, a podcast that tries very hard not just to be men talking, it's Sif Pop. Welcome to Sip Pop Weekly, streaming live most Saturday mornings or available to download later in your podcast feed. Unless, of course, you're a patron. Patrons get perks. Patrons get those perks. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life. I'm your host, Aaron Dicer, and he thinks food tastes funny on a plastic fork. It's Andrew Ormsby, ladies and gentlemen. Ahoy! Each week we'll chat about movies, TV, and whatever else from the pop culture universe is on our minds. And please welcome our guest this week, new to the show. She refused to podcast unless you're willing to connect your braids with hers. It's Courtney Lanning. That <laughs> was an official demand, by the way. I gotta have that direct connection. Man, I I think uh, Courtney and I are gonna have some issue with that. Yeah, it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be hard to connect braids with Andrew. Uh, I think I think I got down here. I yeah, gotta just gotta get, gotta get that we'll beard to... long enough. Yeah, and, uh, and we should be good to go. I'll, I'll give you time. I'm a patient woman. Oh, okay. thank you, thank you. Well, you're gonna have to be very patient for anything up here because <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> it's not just the razor that keeps it uh, keeps it yeah. growing. Uh, Courtney, welcome to Sif Pop. Hey. Uh, it has been. I was trying to look when the last time we debuted a Sif Pop guest was, and it has been a long time. Um, so welcome uh, to your debut episode of Sif Pop. We're glad to have you on. Uh, Courtney is a film critic from the main area of this country, the great Northeast. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself and um, where you like what how did you fall in love with movies? How long have you been a movie person? Like just to kind of introduce us to yourself, Courtney. So I I do live in Maine at the moment and I love it. Um, although up uh, up here, unless you've been in Maine for 16 generations, they say you're from away. Uh, it doesn't uh-huh. matter how long you've been here, like yes. you said. Unless you have 16 generations or came across on the Mayflower, uh, you are from away. Uh, and I actually am from Arkansas. Uh, still write for an Arkansas newspaper. It's where most of my reviews pop up. That's near us. Um, yeah. That's right. Down there in the Ozarks. Um, yeah. All 
all of my reviews show up there in the newspaper. And I guess I, I've been in love with movies since I watched, watched them as a kid. Um, you and I and Aaron uh, and Andrew, we were talking about things that I really focus in on during award season in the mm-hmm. pre-show and uh, animation is, is really my go-to as far as favorite medium for films and storytelling. Um, what is your, uh, you don't have to even narrow it down to one, uh, but what is one of your favorite animated movies of all time as an animated film lover? I am also an animated film lover, as you might be able to tell from the knickknacks behind me. Um, but, uh, but what is your favorite animated film or one of them of all time? You know, I, I really do love uh, Hayao Miyazaki's work. Nice. Um, and I think that one of my favorite movies of all time is probably Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds. I think um, Courtney and I are going to get along just fine. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the, the braid connection that yeah. we'll still work on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we are glad to have you on the show, Courtney. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We're going to, of course, have a couple of reviews that we're doing. We're going to talk about the Fablemans and Women Talking. Um, and then we'll also have the best ever Steven Spielberg movies. Which, again, this is one of those things, Andrew, where I look back through our history and I'm like, have we not done Best Ever Spielberg movies before? And I couldn't find any record of it. So I was like, well, let's let's do it. Let's get it over with. Um, <laughs> so uh, so we'll be doing the Best Ever Steven Spielberg movies. And, of course, we'll do some Buried Treasure as well. But if you guys are ready, we're going to review some movies. Uh, oh, let's let's kick it. it off, speaking of Spielberg, with his latest. Let's talk a little bit about The Fablemans. Lights change how everything looks. It's hard to find our house. Ours is the dark house with no lights. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. A coming-of-age story about a young man's discovery of shattering fam- of a shattering family secret and an exploration of the power of movies to help us see the truth about each other and ourselves. As mentioned, this is Steven Spielberg's latest. Uh, Gabriel LaBelle as uh, Sammy Fableman for most of the movie, although there's a younger version uh, than him as well. Julia Butters uh, hanging out here as one of the sisters. Michelle Williams, Paul Dano playing the parents. Seth Rogen playing family friend Benny. Uh, Judd Hirsch coming in for a cup of coffee, just bursts onto the screen for a little bit and uh, <laughs> and has some fun, um, as well as uh, a cameo, a very ca- a great cameo I will not spoil uh, that uh, happens towards the end of the movie. Um, lots of great people in this. Of course, we know Spielberg, Sp- Spielberg is a very talented director, but what did you guys think? Uh, did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay? Andrew, where do you put it? I didn't like it. He's in the didn't like. I know. I'm the only one in the world who doesn't like this movie. (laughs) Shun him. Shun him. He didn't like a Spielberg movie. Uh, Courtney, did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay? I I actually, I loved it. Loved it. Nice. That's honestly the smaller camp. I talking with some of my other critics at the newspaper and they all were, in Andrew's camp, they they thought it was dishonest. Mm, interesting. Well, let's let's get into it. Uh, liked it, loved it, disliked it, hated it. It was just okay for me. I'm going to go on the low side of loved it. Um, the vi- like bordering on liked it. Uh, I think this is a great movie. 
Uh, I just there are some flaws here for me that will keep it really kind of from competing for my best movie of the year. Although it's it will be one of my favorites of the year. Um, I think there's a lot to like here, Courtney. Uh, you seem to love it the most. So why don't you start us off? What are some of your general thoughts on the Fablemans? So, um, first off, I think it's hilarious that we get two Paul Dano movies this year and one is him playing the Riddler and the other is him playing Steven Spielberg's father. A very mild mannered dad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Just, just a very calm, simple father. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I, I think the smaller performances in the Fablemans end up being my favorite. Judd Hirsch's on screen scenes were just where I, I was really wowed. He's um, so good. He just come in. He just comes in and owns the movie for a yeah. moment. It's amazing. He does, and you know, he comes in. He he has a great line about um, you know he's a lion tamer. Steven Spielberg asks him, uh, "What stick in your head in a lion's mouth is mm-hmm. that art?" And he goes, "No, that's not art. Keeping the lion from eating you when your head is in the mouth—that's <laughs> art." Yeah. Um, and and I I won't spoil the the final cameo at the end, but my my job was was on the floor for that last scene. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those are a couple of really fun moments uh, of the movie. I, I think for me, I had a really good time with this movie primarily because it says so much about what it means to be a creative person in many different mm. ways. It says it through some some negative way. Like it shows some of the negative consequences of having kind of that creative brain. It shows uh, also some of the incredible genius and positive consequences of having a creative brain. Um, I've been told, uh, that I am a fairly balanced left brain, right brain kind of person. Like I love organization. I love order. I love, you know, spreadsheets and logic and all those things, but I also love to create, I love to perform, you know? So there's, there are these two sides of me, uh, that kind of battle with each other. And what I loved about this movie, one of my primary things is I felt that in Spielberg. Like, I think he has kind of that same thing where it's like, this logical engineerish type part of his brain comes from things that his dad taught him and showed him about how machines work. And his dad's always talking about like the details of how things work, which, you know, Mm. activates this part of his brain. And then his mom is just like dance and sing and be creative and let go. And it doesn't all have to make sense. And so then there's that, you know, And they were kind of these extremes in a lot of Spielberg's genius, it seems, may come from that kind of balance. At least that's what I think he's saying uh, in this movie. Um, So I think that's why at the end of the at the end of the day, I I come down in the loved it camp is because that's so meaningful to me. Like this idea of how do you become a creative person and and also balance that with, you know, a, a desire for order and a desire for logic and, and all those kind of things. And um, I and, and again, I, that's not to insinuate that either side, quote unquote, is a negative way to live your life. Just for me, I've always struggled with that tension in in finding that balance. So um, so I found the, the movie moving uh, in that way. Uh, Andrew, what are some of your, your thoughts? Uh, whenever you're doing a period piece, you have to make the world feel real. And I think that this time period felt incredibly real. That the environments, the people's mannerisms, it truly felt like I was watching a film from the 50s and 60s, not one just set in the 50s and 60s. So I think that was brilliant. And speaking of uh, mannerisms and performances, I think Gabriel LaBelle is quite remarkable as a young man 
whose love for film filmmaking collides with his family life. Mm -hmm. The performance was genuine and believable, probably the most believable in the film, honestly. Um, let's talk about some more of the performances since you're kind of leading us down, down that way. There's been a real mixed reaction to Michelle Williams in this movie. Uh, I have heard extremes on both sides, people calling for nominations for an amazing performance, uh, people saying that it didn't work for them. Courtney, I'm interested to start with you. How did you feel about Michelle Williams in this movie? I feel like her, her performance, I feel like she gave it her all. I don't think you can say she walked in, she phoned it in, she was Oh doing... no, she's doing something. She's definitely yeah. doing something in this movie, yeah. I think she gave it everything she could. Um, but when I look at my favorite parts of this movie, I don't think she she falls into that side. I don't think she did a bad job. Um, I just there was just something something a little off kilter about it. It just it didn't didn't quite fit into place for me and, and I honestly couldn't tell you why. Andrew, some thoughts? She was pushing. She was really pushing the performance, and it let's just say, doesn't. Let's say Spielberg was really pushing the performance through for her, because well, I just I I often get a little uncomfortable giving the entirety of a performance to the actors themselves because the directors make so many choices about what makes it to the screen, those kind of things. For all we know, there are different, subtler takes from what she's doing, and Spielberg was like. No, this is what I want. Um, yeah. So it is a, a de definitely a balanced thing, but there does yeah. seem to be a lot of effort in it for sure. Yeah. Well, it, regardless, either way, the performance that I saw on screen did not feel genuine. It felt like somebody was trying way too hard mm -hmm. to convey certain aspects and emotions of their life. Um, not only that, I just don't like that character. Like I, I know that it's coming from a real place, but I felt like she was manipulative and inconsiderate but to but i think the movie wants us to pity this character and if that's the movie's intention for me it failed i think the movie wants us to see her through her son's eyes in this case who is also the director right like i think the intention is for us to for spielberg to go my here's here are all the flaws of my mom but see it how I see it and find empathy for her even through those those flaws. So I think that's what you're picking up on is the the intention of empathy for this character and you know her ability to navigate her own feelings, emotions, uh, mental health, all of that. Um, well, I'm glad you brought up mental health because I feel like that obviously has to be uh, at least a factor in. I like this character. I don't like this character. What have you? Um, it never comes right out and says she's suffering from blank. Mm -hmm. She is diagnosed with blank, but you, you watch this as a character and you can tell this is somebody who is clearly struggling. I don't know if it's bipolar disorder or if she might have, you know, onset Alzheimer's or something, but she's, she's clearly not in a healthy mind space. Um, and I feel like that has to be at least part of the lens that we look at her character through. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's what the movie's attempting to do is to bring empathy to that and just say, you know, humanity can look ugly, um, but it's still humanity. Um, I, I thought the scenes between Gabrielle and Michelle were some of her best scenes, like the scenes where they are 
wrestling with his discovery or whatever I thought was was some of the best stuff uh, from her in this movie. But overall, I'm 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 with you, Andrew. I feel I feel like her performance didn't quite the performance that was on screen didn't quite work for me uh, overall. Yeah. So it was one of my negatives for sure. Uh, other thoughts, Courtney? What else? I um I feel like Seth Rogen kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, I guess I just didn't expect Seth Rogen to to be in this movie. I, I didn't look at the cast list before I went into it. I tried to go in blinds, um, and so when I when I saw, oh hey, that's that's Seth Rogen. My brain was like, wait, wait, that's not that's not Sean Astin. Hang on, I, I <laughs> he does do look like take. Sean Astin, <laughs> right? At least in this picture, because they they make him look so mild mannered. Yeah, um, and I was just thinking, oh, that's Seth Rogen. Okay, and and he did a great job. Um, for the the best friend that comes in and, and does what he does, um, and you know, there's there's a lot of moral complexities with with his actions and performances as well. Uh, especially, I think his best scene is just trying to buy the camera for Stephen there at the 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 camera shop. I don't know if that's much of a spoiler, but um, you know, just there's there's guilt in this purchase, but there's also. I, I care about your mother and she likes your movies. So please take this and keep making movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Andrew, other thoughts? Um, I think that Spielberg has an almost deity esque status in the entertainment world now that just the simple fact that I'm getting to watch a movie about where his brilliance and love and passion comes from feels like a privilege. Like it is it's a privilege to sit down and watch how he thinks he um you know uh became who he is. Not some documentary looking back that's not personal or anything. I think that this retelling of his young adulthood and yes, some of it can be, you know, um exaggerated or elevated or anything like that or you know, cast in a certain light because you can't trust really an autobiography to be sure, totally genuine. Sure. But sitting down and watching it, uh, there were parts of this. My favorite scene in this entire movie is all the scenes where he's actually making movies and stuff. And especially where he's, there's a scene where he's trying to convince a, a, an actor to uh, convey emotion while looking over something. Mm-hmm. And he tries to, you know, make a person. That's my favorite scene from the entire movie because I'm like, this is, Spielberg, you know, like this, mm-hmm. like and some of the, like we, the technical tricks, like the pinprick yeah, in the poking, film for the gunshot, yeah, like exactly. genius. Yeah, that's the movie that I loved. Everything else, uh, that's where it kind of fell apart. But I'll get to get to it whenever we get to negatives. That's fine. I I I agree, and I was going to bring it up if nobody else did. I think the filmmaking stuff in this is really fun to watch. Um, yeah, you know how he created the explosions with the you know stepping on the boards and just stuff like that is always fun for me. I also think when you talk about like the privilege of getting to understand Steven Spielberg's own narrative about his career, like this, you know, you're right. Our own narratives are not to be trusted. We are all human. We all have biases. We all uh, tend to see ourselves as the protagonists of our own story. No, no, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few of us walk around thinking, I'm the villain. Um, so, you know, we create narratives that excuse our negative parts and emphasize our good parts. That's just what we do as, as human beings, right? So sp- to see Spielberg's version of his narrative, of his life and, and who he is, was, was really interesting to me. 
And the thing I took most away from it, one of the other things I really liked about this movie is it really shows that the seed of his creative genius is about control. It really is about this thing where the things that frighten him in life, the things that seem out of control for him in life, he can control them on film. He can make them do what he wants them to do. He can make them be what he wants them to be. So, for instance, this isn't giving a lot away because this is kind of the setup of the whole thing. But, for instance, you know, his first movie experience being – or maybe not his first, but one of his biggest movie experiences being – I think it's an old movie called The Greatest Show on Earth. I think it's yeah. is, is what the movie was. And there's a big train wreck in it. And then his mind – I thought it was a really brilliant moment – where we're used to seeing the child wake up screaming because they've had a nightmare about this thing they saw in a movie. And we hear him screaming, but he's not having a nightmare. He's having a revelation that he wants to create. Yeah. This, he's like, I know what I want for Christmas or Han- I'm sorry, Hanukkah or, you know, my birthday or whatever it was. Um, and he he is able to then recreate this so he can take control of it and understand it. It's all about it. and, control. And 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 the the control seed is really interesting when you start to think about this movie because he is taking control of his own upbringing in in the the fear in the messiness in the you know whatever the chaos of whatever it means to grow up in that family or any family and he's going now I can control it when I make the fablements so the movie itself is this grand example. Of the theme of what the movie is doing. It's kind of meta in that way. There's a little bit of meta-ness here about his own desire to control what what he wants to say about his upbringing and his parents and himself. And I don't know. I thought that was really beautiful. I found that really affecting. Um, So that was another uh, big positive for me was just thinking of, you know, just kind of that insight into himself that was aware of what he is even doing as he creates this movie. And as you look back at Spielberg's movies, you can see a lot of like his idea of controlling the narrative. Um, And you see it in other filmmakers as well. Like I think of Quentin Tarantino, like the idea Mm -hmm. to an extreme, how he takes, you know, terrible things and wants to control the narrative in a way to make them completely different. You know, like filmmakers use film as this, creative resource to tell a story the way they wanted it to happen or the way they see it. And, um, man, I just, I, I love that stuff. And I think the movie handles all that stuff, uh, really, really well. Um, Andrew, do you have some negatives you want to, you want to go ahead and get to get into? Cause you didn't like this movie. That's you didn't, you didn't like it. <laughs> this is my biggest issue with this movie right here is I found this film to be incredibly disjointed jumping mm. from one aspect of Sam who, We've been calling him Steven this entire time, but the character's name is actually Sam. Um, it uh-huh. jumps from one aspect of his life to another with very little flow. It's like Spielberg was grabbing the most important and informative moments from his childhood and to show the audience what he felt was vital to him growing up. But you have to remember from a narrative flow from one element of Sam's life to the next, it has to be smooth and even like they were... From the same movie, and I don't think they were from the same movie. Like, there are some sequences, especially that third act where he's in high school, where all of those sequences were from a completely different movie. For oh, me, I totally I was, disagree. Oh, I, I totally disagree with this point. I think this movie is so consistent tone-wise, but go ahead. No, uh, yeah, for, for me, I would have preferred if the movie focused solely on either his love for movie and his relationship with his family and not bring any of these 
outside elements to it. Like that entire third act. There's a sequence, I'll just say, that takes place in the hallway of a high school between two and then three characters. It's so good. I hated it's, it, but it's so, so much. key to the movie. Like that's I, I think it 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 all fits I think it all goes together in a way that again is creating this idea of narrative control. Like that's what he's doing in that scene with these characters in his life. Like it is even almost a literal early example of him taking his life and then creating what he wants it to be on screen and how that impacts the other people around him. And I just, yeah, I just, just to disagree. It's okay. It's just a hard disagree. Yeah, I think it's actually, it, one it of the really is because break the tie me. Courtney. Who's right. Who's right. Courtney. <laughs> you know, I, I do feel like there are parts that feel a little disjointed, but again, I kind of feel like that gets back to the overall uh, tone and message of the film. Uh, I'm sure when Steven looks back on his life as a kid, it probably feels disjointed when he's dealing with a mother who has mental health issues and two parents who are divorcing and keeping the secret of an affair on top of anti-Semitism. I'm sure that feels like a very disjointed childhood. So if it's intentional, maybe he imprinted that on the movie himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm, my issue is that yes, I can understand that having a cluttered life as a child with so many things going on, can feel disjointed, but I also think that for a movie to tell a good story, it has to give us some element to focus on. You know, like whether it be, if the movie wanted to be Steven Spielberg, you know, kind of, you know, playing with movies in the background, but it's really about his family and and his family element and how that could have shaped him. But it tried, the movie tried to say, this is this is so important. Really focus on that, but also don't forget to focus on this because this it, is also really important. It didn't feel like the movie gave enough, well, not grace, but time to each thing that it told me was so important. Well, because it, because it, it, at the center of all of it, tying all of it together is film. At the center of every single one of those stories is how he uses film to control it. Like, it, like this is a movie, even even our final shot, like um, this is, uh, again, an old thing I go back to that I learned in an early uh, storytelling class. But the very last thing you see in a movie is the thing the director wanted you to remember, wanted you to think about, wanted you to leave the theater thinking about. And the very last scene of this movie is about controlling the narrative. The very last scene of this movie is about how film can make you feel. I think that's the whole point of the movie. I don't think the point of the movie is about his family. I don't think it's about anti-Semitism. I don't think it's about bullying. I don't think it's about mental health. I think it's about how Steven Spielberg, a.k.a. Sammy Fableman, uh, yes, that's Sam. right. Sam, well. I, <laughs> I'm Sam. doing a bit from the movie, Aaron. Come on. Okay. Yeah. But I was going to say, you know, Fable is right there in the name. Like, he knows he's telling this Fable fable story of his own life. Uses movies uh, to be able to see his life differently and to control the things that scare him and frighten him. I think that is the through line. I think that is the point of the the movie that maybe you were looking for. But um, but if you had a disjointed experience, you had a disjointed experience. That's, uh, you know, I totally get it. Yeah. Uh, Courtney, what about negatives from you? Is there anything about the movie that you walk away going, uh, even though I love this, this didn't quite work for me? I feel like the biggest negative impacts to the story for me, um, you know, Sam felt like a fleshed out character. His mother and father felt like fleshed out characters, whether you thought their performances were Mm -hmm. great or not. They feel like whole characters. Yeah. 
I don't feel like Stephen's sisters were even no. there. No, no, um, that, that's a great negative to bring up. And and if this is going to be a film about how family and the chaos it brings impacts his perspective on filmmaking growing up, then I think you got to at least dedicate it another five to 10 minutes to these family relationships. Like there was a scene where um, he, he's talking at the table about one of his movies and mm-hmm. one of his sisters says, what about rules for women? When are you going to cast a right. girl in your movie? Right. And I thought, okay, cool. How ironic. Maybe this is a, right. Maybe <laughs> this is going to be a relationship that he delves into with the sister about, yeah, maybe I should be casting more women in my movies or just women at all, because it's all men in his shots, mm-hmm. but it just boom bypasses. There's uh, another scene right after the divorce is announced where he's up editing a movie on his little editor for, for his high school and one of the sisters comes in and uh, they have a, a little fight about how can you be so calm through all of this and you're selfish and yada, yada, yada. Um, and then he says, hey, before you go, can you watch this movie with me before I show it to my high school? And I thought, OK, cool. Maybe we're going to get a little bit more of a tender development here, maybe a little bit more of these are my sisters. And, and we just don't. The movie denied us those crucial aspects of this yeah. family. I mean. I understand the divorce is a front and center part of the narrative, but uh, dude had three sisters and we should have had at least a little more time dedicated to them and their impact on his life. When I was reading about how Stephen wanted to make the movie initially, I feel like I remember reading that he um, initially conceived the project back in the nineties. And he was talking to, of all people, his sister about how the movie should be made and getting the idea off the grounds. And, you know, for that to be a part of the founding details, we don't get very much relationship with the sisters at all in this movie. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. Uh, and I felt the irony of her asking about, you know, women's roles in a role that isn't given a lot of, you know, credence or due. Not to say the movie doesn't have a great, you know, women's role. Certainly Michelle Williams is is given plenty to do front and center in this movie. Uh, but you know, just interesting coming from that character. Was it, was it even Julia Butters who said that? Because I'm just like, you've got Julia Butters. Like she's amazing. <laughs> like use her. She's incredible. Um, yeah, I, I think that was her character. Yeah. So what's, what's interesting about it. And I wonder if this is the case is I wonder if it's because his sisters weren't ever something that was a, an obstacle in his life that he had to f- figure out. Like, this is a movie about his obstacles and how, again, he controlled them through film. And his sisters were, uh, at least according to this movie, felt just to be kind of a positive influence on his life right from the beginning. Like, they they seem to have, uh, when they pop in, they're always telling him the right thing and helping him, you know, shift his thinking uh, to where it should be as opposed to where it is. Uh, they seem very constructive. They're just so underdeveloped. They're just, they're just not, they're just not, there isn't that key moment with them that brings any kind of thematic, you know, resolution to their role in what's going on here. So, yeah, I, I Well, I couldn't tell you any of their names. Right. Right. We right. all remember Sam, Sammy, Sam. Mm-hmm. I don't remember any of his sister's names and the movie just, it didn't seem like the movie took the time to really give them much of an identity yep. so that you could remember who they were. Yep. Yep. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, Andrew, what's your one last thing about the Fablemans? I guess technically the post credit scene is every single film Steven Spielberg made, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. But it's not in this movie. But it's not so. in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney, any final thoughts? I am um, 
you know, when I look at, and I'm sure you do this too, as we get to December and the end of the year, you start putting together your top 10 list. Uh, I think these were the top 10 movies I enjoyed most. Um, I feel like Fablemans is probably going to go in, in my top 10s. I, I, when I finished watching the movie, I came in and sat down on the couch next to my wife and just kind of stared off into space for two or three minutes. And she was like, you good? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was just a really good movie. And I just, and I think that's probably what Steven wants people to mm-hmm. be doing after they watch the film. Sure. Right? Absolutely. Uh, my one last thing is put Judd Hirsch in everything. Uh, yeah, seriously. Just, just, just give him all the jobs. Uh, I want to watch incredible. Independence Day again now. because Yeah, right? Yeah. Did you know that's actually the role that Steven Spielberg told Judd Hirsch that he uh, watched that want, he wanted him for this role? Really? It was, like, it was Independence Day. Yeah, he had like a movie for each of them where he was like, this is the movie that sold me on you for this role. And for Judd Hirsch, it was Independence Day. That's fantastic. So. I love that so <laughs> but, but much. But not, not the sequel. Just the <laughs> original. No, just the original. Just the original. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> you imagine if Steven Spielberg's talking to Judd Hirsch. The movie that made me think I need you was Independence Day 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Resurgence. <laughs> Uh, all right, there you go. That is the Fablemans. It is in theaters <laughs> now. Uh, if you want to check it out, let's move on to talk a little bit about women talking. It was all waiting to happen before it happened. You could look back and follow the breadcrumbs along the path that led to violence. When we looked back, it had been everywhere. It is a part of our faith to forgive. We will be forced to leave the colonies if we do not forgive these men. None of you will listen to reason. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and terrified. Hope for the unknown is good. It is better than hatred of the familiar. A group of women in an isolated religious colony struggle to reconcile their faith with a string of sexual assaults committed by the colony's men. We can start there. Uh, Certainly, there are different trigger warnings that deserve even elevated mention. Sexual assault is one of them. Uh, So many people have dealt with this terrible and traumatic issue that it's worth mentioning right off the bat that this movie does not shy away from the central role of sexual assault in the plot. So I wanted to let you guys know that. Uh, it stars Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Rooney Mara, Francis McDormand, uh, Ben Wishaw as one of the men who's talking, the only man talking in this uh, movie, uh, Judith Ivey, Shayla Brown, Michelle McLeod. Um, what did you guys think of women talking? Did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay? I should also mention Sarah Polly uh, directing uh, women talking. Courtney, we'll start with you this time. What category would you put it in? Like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay? Uh, I liked it. Um, I I don't think there's anything keeping me from loving it. It's just, it's such a brutal film. Mm. Uh, when, you, when we talk about going from the Fablemans to this, mm-hmm. sure, uh, it's, it's just such a brutal movie that I, I have a hard time going. I loved it. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I liked good it. Movie it's good. of the year. No. <laughs> Aaron. Uh, I love this movie. Uh, this will compete compete for my best of the year. Um, I I there's there are two ways to make sure that you lock in Aaron loving your movie. Uh, one of them is to deal with themes of religion, choice, and uh, you know. Um, 
cult and those kind of things. Uh, I think exploring those things is so important. And the other is to have uh, a group of human beings just give consecutive amazing performances. That's going to do it for me every time. Like people in a room performing their butts off in astonishing ways. Like I, there's so much I love about this movie. Andrew, what category are you in? Aaron, I've reviewed thousands of movies over my life. Oh, we're getting a speech. We're getting a speech. Yes. So when I tell you that I've only given 33 movies a perfect 10 out of 10, mm-hmm. I want you to know that means something. Okay. There are now 34 movies. This movie that have was one out of 10. 10. Oh, no. Okay. 34 movies are now yeah. 10 out of 10. That's amazing, man. Wow. Yeah. Definitely be competing for your best of the year then. Yeah. And you know what's funny? It's the second movie this year that I've given a perfect 10 out of 10 to. <laughs> it's wild that it's happened twice in the same year. So that's why in the pre-show, whenever I was talking about how great 2022 was for movies, it really, really was. This movie, oh my God. Well, you I, get to start then. As much as I love this movie, sounds like you loved it more. So go for it. Just like gush all over the movie, man. Well, I'm going to be talking a lot about the themes that you brought up, the theological themes and stuff. But mm-hmm. before I get to that, I want to talk about how this film centers around a group of women who are debating what to do over the most truly vile and horrible situation they could find themselves in. And mm-hmm. the group age ranges from, you know, prebubescent to the very senior. And what I found most beautiful is that since this plight affected them all, each of their opinions mattered. Mm-hmm. Every single person, even though the issue at hand is worse than anything I could ever imagine happening, uh, they discuss it with great restraint and grace and respect for one another. It's It was truly nothing short of saintly. And I'm trying not to be hyperbolic here, but... uh. And I'm also trying not to get emotional when I talk about this movie because it it wrecked me hard. Um, They also say nothing. uh, That's just well-balanced dialogue is what it is. Even though you have big name actors in this, uh, you know, uh, Francis McDormand and many others, uh, no one feels more important than another Mm. person in this film. Yeah, I agree. Because the the movie knows that that the story is bigger than one person. It's, It's a huge group of people. That's in pain. So it's the group having a voice. And I love that. It's it, you, you mentioned something that I'll jump off of just, just briefly, which is that the movie presents, I'm going to say democracy, mm-hmm. uh, just as a concept at its best, right? Like we are so used to currently in our current, at least uh, United States of America culture, seeing democracy at its worst. We're, we're seeing polarization. We're seeing you know, uh, yelling at each other, hatred, all of those things uh, is democracy. It's worse. This movie dares to say, if you get people in a room that believe differently about something, you can have a constructive conversation. And that is such a needed and powerful message to have in a culture where more and more of us are going, yeah, I just don't even want to talk to people who don't believe like I do. Like, it's just like, I don't, what do I have to say to them? Um, and it is, it, it, it's just, for me, it's a beautiful thing to see, um, because it, it also in many ways combats this idea of, 
uh, or may maybe emphasizes the idea that part of the problem is that we don't have to reconcile with our conversations with each other because we're having them outside of each other. We're having them on social media. We're having them completely separate from the idea of each other as human beings instead of in a barn looking at the other person and just actually having to say the things we mean out loud to another human being and to be able to hear their response. Like that kind of stuff is so important right now that I, I agree. It's part of the elevation for my, my love for this movie is the idea of what it means to have a critical conversation with each other about the most traumatic things in our lives um, and to be able to disagree, um, and what it looks like to disagree in love, what it looks like to disagree in pain. Um, but you know, uh, all that stuff, I just, I agree with you, Andrew was, was really powerful in this movie. Um, Courtney, what are some of the things you, you, uh, liked about this movie? You know, I, I always appreciate how when you have a film with a very limited setting mm -hmm. and you can still make it one of the most interesting movies of the year, I feel like that is true talent mm -hmm. because when you're not relying on a backdrop, when you're not relying on interesting settings, I mean, when you look at movies that are coming out now, they're like, you know, Venice and New York and all these exciting places. And they, they rely on settings to be a, a key factor in the movie. But here, like you've mentioned, these are just people talking in a barn for the majority of the film. And when they're not in the barn, they might be in a field of hay. And when they're not in a field of hay, they might be at the dinner table, but this is mostly just about a group of women talking. And we barn, never leave the compound. Still, no. The entire movie, we never leave the yeah. compound. Yeah, it's, not it's very stage-like, like it's like it's uh, adapted from a or a stage play or something. But it feels so cinematic. This is such yeah. a hard thing to pull off to be that much like a stage play, but also feel so much like a movie. I, I've, I'm on record as knocking movies down for not being able to do this. Uh, I think most famously so uh, Fences, I think, was the the Denzel movie. Uh, yeah. I love the performances in Fences. I think Fences is an amazing story. I think it feels like a stage play. It doesn't feel like a movie to me. This feels like a movie to me, even though it mm -hmm. could be done on stage. So I think that's worth mentioning. Courtney, continue. Well, it, well and w when you don't have vibrant settings and backdrops to rely on to to raise your movie – it just puts that much more work onto the actors mm -hmm. who are on the screen. Um, they, that much more weight is on their burden to translate this experience and story for us. And they do so well. I mean, everybody from Rooney Mara, uh, Judith Ivey. I mean, there's, there's not a bad performance. in Judith the movie Ivey is so good in this movie. Oh yeah. I'm with you. You know, we're talking about um, where, you recognize an actor from you talk about you know steven spielberg for the fablements he picked judd hirsch after watching independence day mm -hmm. for this role and you know i i kept watching these characters and i'm picking where i've seen different ones before and when i got to sheila mccarthy i'm like she looks so familiar and and i just couldn't picture it and then it, it came to me all at once oh this is the librarian from the day after tomorrow yep and it's it's just always when you recognize somebody who's in mm -hmm. more of a, an artsy film, but you recognize their role from like more of a popcorn, a big flick. popcorn yeah. junkie action flick, and um, you know she she was one of my favorite characters in in the whole story. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, it's so funny because you, you mentioned Judith Ivy, and my my instant reaction was, "Oh, she's so good." Then you mentioned Sheila McCarthy, and I was like, "Oh, oh she's, she's so good. good." It's like you you could mention any of these humans, and Bring I would just up. be like, uh, "Oh my goodness, that performance!" Like they are they are all killing it in this movie. Yeah. Uh, there's not a bad performance here. There, no. there are some more subtler performances in more off screen performances. Frances McDormand isn't in this movie a ton but when she is she's incredible um and like and playing a very central role to what we're supposed to be learning and what we're supposed to be feeling and um yeah i just yeah every single performance is one of my favorite performances of the year uh so yeah well and i feel like when you when you talk about the subject matter they're dealing with uh an oppressive religious theological uh setting mm-hmm. and this this weight that is over them because of their faith and in some cases here uh a credit to how good the actors do uh, a salvation that they find still within their faith despite the fact that it is what is oppressing them you know obviously being in maine now uh, a lot of my conversation focuses on stephen king don't want to go down that road. <laughs> no, but when when you talk about tropes in Stephen King's writings and movies that are adapted from his writings, a lot of the negatives that come out are people go, oh, well, you know, he's just so, he uses the church as such a blunt instrument. Correct. It's a blunt instrument. Oh, there's always got to be a, a crazy religious fundamentalist. And, and I feel like this film does the opposite of that. You know, it takes these negative religious experiences that these women are, are going through. Um, and it deals with it in such a uh, experiential way so that everybody watching the movie comes away going, oh, that's what they're going through. This is this is a real thing mm-hmm. rather than a caricature of religion or a blunt instrument church. Man, uh, it's, it's another part of this movie that rockets it to the top for me is the way that it handles faith in this movie is so beautiful because it doesn't make faith the villain. It makes fundamentalism and the idea of manipulation of faith the villain, right? And it makes the, these men the villain more than anything. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me that it's willing to be that nuanced, to be able to say that for many of these women, the, their faith is still strong, even amidst Mm. the trauma of what has seemingly come from their faith, they find a way to disassociate what they believe from how someone else has used their beliefs to create um, trauma uh, for them. Uh, And that, uh, as a person of faith, like that is something for me that uh, I think I've had to wrestle with my whole life is this idea of what is, you know, what are my personal beliefs and how do they impact my ability to see other human beings? How do they uh, impact what, what has come from a, uh, a cooperative mass delusion and what has come from a genuine desire to understand the beauty of the world and where love comes from and what faith means to me and to wrestle with my own faith and to see these women under more extreme circumstances that I have any inkling of ever experiencing um, wrestle with that same thing and still come to some of the same conclusions that I've, I've had to come to in my own life is 
man, it was really powerful for me. And I just appreciated so much the uh, writer, director, performers being able to bring that to life uh, in a real way. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it was a, a big part of the movie uh, for me as well. Uh, Andrew, what are some of your other thoughts? Well, I'm going to build off what you guys just said. Um, I love how this movie has the ability to let the audience work. Like, the audience doesn't just sit back in this one. This one, the audience has kind of evolved because even though this movie or this movie is about a sexual assault, it never shows you anything. Uh, it lets the audience's imagination work through what is happening in the whole film. And every time, our imagination will automatically go to the absolute worst scenario. And we're probably correct. And that's the thing. Uh, yet, having all of that, while the discourse between this group about what to do next is going on, you're in awe of their ability to discuss the theological ramifications for everyone. And it makes the audience aware of how faith and religion can be used as a foundation for strength and love, but also faith can be used as a weapon to subjugate people. And I love how this movie um, is not afraid to have that conversation civilly, civilly. You would think that, I think we've said this before, and sorry if I'm just rehashing things we've already said, but their ability to have a civil discourse over something so extreme is something that is unheard of in modern society. Everybody's is shouting over each other, but they respect each other too much to do that. I mean, yes, there's scenes where passion does, you know, take root, and you can definitely see it flare up in people, but it's quiet or it's quick to recede and uh and to move forward i also like the fact that this movie uh it has um it, it left me with uh questions about certain characters particularly the ben washaw character i have several theories on that character now after watching this movie and i looked at it. it's a movie that makes me continuously think about it after it's done the yeah, there's there's some things done with the Ben Wishaw character, and I believe the Rooney Mara, Mara character. That was the only point in this movie where it's like I'm trying I'm I'm trying to connect the dots to the overall uh, what this movie is doing to what it's doing with these two characters, and I think I got there. But if there's if there's a part where I had to struggle the most, it was probably with what it's what it's doing with them. I I, I think he was the one. I think he was the one. And that's what my big theory is. He was the... I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, he was the one, and now everything he's doing is out of guilt and remorse. Oh, I didn't I didn't pick up on that at all, but... Mm. We'll have to have that conversation after, just to make sure we're talking yeah. about the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do want to push back on a couple of things you said, not in a major way, but just to clarify. Uh, one, you mentioned we don't see anything. I do want to, again, state that we do see some things that are very traumatic. Um I think we do see intruders, so we do know for a fact that there were people in the room. I know you're saying we don't see the graphicness the of of the act of what they're doing, but we yeah. do see the graphicness of the, the after effects of yeah. what they have done. And I think that's that's um, that's that's, fair. that's worth that should that's be clarified. Worth, that's worth clarifying at least, yeah, and, that and worth 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 mentioning. Um, and I would, the other thing I would push back on is the idea that, that people aren't having these conversations in the modern world. I think it's just that we don't see, I think they're happening under, you know, behind closed doors and under, you know, in, in family rooms and maybe meeting rooms. 
but it, we're not seeing it in public. We're not seeing it in public forums like social media in those. That's kind of, what I'm those kind of yeah. places. So again, just a clarification that yeah. you know we know there are human beings that are able to disagree amicably and to have these conversations and to have terrible, horrible, powerful conversations with each other. Uh, but because all we see is this idea of what's in the public forum, it becomes you know very politicized very quickly and very difficult to see it in our modern life. Um, so those, those would just be a couple clarification pushbacks on that. Um, uh, Courtney, anything else that, uh, that you want to talk about with this movie? You know, I, I feel like one thing that I really appreciated um, was the role of uh, Melvin. Uh, you have this Medanite community mm-hmm. um, of women who are, discussing a very difficult subject mm-hmm. and they all handle it in different ways. Yep. Uh, we get different portraits of, you know, one turns to, to smoking and has panic attacks and one is just unfiltered rage. And it's, it's all understandable. Some, some turn to denial and it's everybody handles it different. And yet they still make space in all the characters to include uh, what I think is essentially a transgender male character uh, in Melvin. And you have uh, a group that is uh, women who can't read and they were never taught to write and their experience of the outside world is vastly limited. They don't even have a map to know where they are, no internet. And yet they still found a wholesome and understandable way to describe a transgender male experience where at least one of the women in this colony goes no this this isn't me this this is going to be me now and and the women find different ways to handle that all these characters have different reactions and i feel like uh august winter's performance as melvin was one of my favorite parts of the film even if it's more of a minor detail in the overall story i agree in in there I, I think you're absolutely correct on the intention there. And there is even the moment where very specifically he's thankful for someone using his name, you know, the, you know, the idea of my taken name and, uh, you know, naming me. Uh, and I think the, the movie handles that very, very well. And that character is vital to kind of our experience and our understanding of, of what is going on. There's so much empathy for everybody, right? Like there's so much empathy in this this movie for you know what people are going through. Um there's there's even empathy for the men, which is really treacherous. That is like really treacherous place to go. But some of these characters talk about, you know, what it means to love these men after everything they've done. Right. And I think it's one of the hardest conversations the movie wanders into, but I, I think it does it beautifully. I think it, it it handles all that stuff with the ability to go here are the different narratives you can take here, are the different ways you can see this um, and, you know, process and wrestle in your own mind with who you agree with and, and how you would, um, you know, uh, approach a situation like forgiveness under such extreme circumstances and, and those kind of things. Um, well, they- I also feel it adds to the nuance mm-hmm. because yeah. you it's very easy, I feel like, in a movie like Women Talking for you to try to divide this into a very black and white issue mm-hmm. of the women are on this side and the men are on this side and never the twine shall meet. But then you have this character like Melvin who has had a foot in both worlds 
Um, and the impact that adds to the nuance of this story is, to me, I think it stands out really well. I also, my my one last thing, um, and then if you guys have anything else you want to mention, we can go there too. But my one last thing is going to be, I was really impressed with how disinterested this movie was in orienting me to where it took place and when it took place. Uh, and I found that this movie, unless I missed something, which is obviously possible. I mean, it tells you what year it takes place. At the very beginning? No. Yeah. 2010 yeah, the 2010 census. census the tr- the tr- well, I understand, but that's 20, 25 minutes into the movie. Like, I'm just, I'm, Wait, oh, I, right, right. I'm, I'm saying, unless, again, unless I'm wrong, which, which is fine, and, and then it'll invalidate my one last thing, but that's fine. No, but- I don't think we know what year it is until we hear that the 2010 census is going on. Oh, and, yeah. And, and because of that, you are, and again, I'm also somebody who doesn't watch trailers, doesn't do pre-search uh so wow i just coined that that i've never heard that before pre-search yeah i don't do pre-search on movies uh copyright 2022 that's right. yes it, it belongs to me um nobody's ever used that word before uh so so i don't do pre-search i don't you know watch trailers so i go into movies pretty clean and going into women talking i didn't know when this took place i didn't yeah. you know this very much could be a, a village situation and it kind, kind of is in that way right in fact, there are a lot that be a great double feature with the village. Um, there are definitely a lot of corresponding uh, ideas, but um, I liked that. I liked that the movie was just just follow the story. You'll learn what you need to learn. You'll know what you need to know, yeah. um, and we'll get there. You know, mm-hmm. if and and so when I find out the 2010 census is going on, I'm going, oh, okay, so. We're in a more modern day situation with a society that is choosing to live this way, um, you know. And so then I'm going, okay, we're dealing with the idea, not casting aspersions on any particular group, but the idea of Mennonites, so the idea of the um, this idea of we're choosing to live a simpler life from a previous time in a modern time. And the movie was able to kind of just bring me along where it wanted to bring me along, and I really liked that. Um, so yeah, I thought that was good. Uh, what I mean, about it, you guys? You got one last thing? It drops hints every now and then. Like she takes out her dentures, you know, and they're like modern right. dentures. Right. So, but it, it's well, stuff the first, like that. The first thing I remember thinking was somebody talked about going, like walking a long distance to a, a I don't know if they said 24 hour clinic or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. What's that? Um, yeah. But you're so. right. It's not until the 2010 census we actually know. Right. You're, you're yeah. right. Yeah. I think so. I think that's right. Well, and they reveal it so gradually. Mm-hmm. They're like mm-hmm. that scene where they talk about her going to the mobile clinic. Like they take a gradual time to show you, oh, there are modern things here. Yeah. Like they name dropped antibiotics. And I went, oh, okay, they have antibiotics. Right. Yes. And then they'd show the classroom and there'd be like a, a modern clock on the wall. And I'd go, oh, okay, that's a modern clock. So it's, again, just adding more to the nuance mm-hmm. and artistic yeah. view of this. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, Andrew. Um, there are two scenes in this movie. Uh, the first is when a four-year-old girl comes into the barn loft and everybody sings her a lullaby. I actually had to step out of the theater uh, during that scene. It was it was just too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other scene is whenever they're being taught the Southern Cross guidance scene. Mm-hmm. That scene's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. It it shattered me to my core. So mm-hmm. normally you'd be lucky to have. A movie would be lucky to have one of those scenes, but this has two that are just. Do you think you can watch this movie again? 
it's it's a valid question. There are those movies where you're supremely glad you saw them, but yeah. don't necessarily want to have to experience them again. I absolutely will watch this movie again. Uh, I know that for a fact, number one, because it's going to be nominated for Best Picture, and I do Sposkers Weekend where we watch every single Best Picture that's a nomination, so I know I'll watch it then. Yeah. Uh, but I think I would willingly watch this movie again even after that, just for the uh, deeper look into the nuance in the performances. Mm-hmm. And because you mentioned two scenes, I bet this movie has five or six scenes that... Sure, that anybody know, could construe, but for me, those could, two scenes, yeah. Yeah, have that moment with, so, yeah. One last thing, Courtney? Um, I, I guess I'll just answer Andrew's question of, I I honestly don't know if I'll, I'll watch it again. It's For me, it's very much a, I'm very glad I saw this. Yeah. This is a masterful work. Um, it, uh, it's not one that, that I want to experience again because it, it is just so brutal mm-hmm. and so raw that, um, you know, when I think of movies that I watch over and over again, you know, I go to the, your popcorn junkies like Twister and Pacific Rim, but this, this isn't one I'm, I'm going to have on. Right it's, now. You know what it is from it's uh, another great, uh, I say great, terrible double feature <laughs> like to subject yourself to uh, in many ways would be with mass. There's a real mass feeling to this this movie as as well, which again is people in a room talking about nuanced, horrible stuff. Actually, Mass has a lot of that same like uh, different opinions in a very traumatic situation, having to have empathy in conversation with each other. Um, That's the Frank Kranz one, right? With Oscar or Jason mm-hmm. Isaacs? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that uh, one yet. Oh, oh, Andrew. Um, yeah, I think okay. knowing your reaction to women talking. Mm-hmm. I think Mass is going to to uh, compete for number thirty five or thirty six or, wow. or whatever. Um, it really is that good. Mass is an in- in- incredible film in many of the same ways. But um, but yeah, yeah, lots of good stuff. Yeah. But I'm I'm not itching to watch Mass again. Um, okay. So so yeah, it's it's in that same kind of category. Well, there you go. That is women talking. Uh, it should be in theaters near you, um, or you know. At least maybe soon. Maybe it'll it'll go wider uh, at some point. Uh, all right. Let's uh, before we head on to the best ever challenge, uh, just say thank you to our Sifpop members. Thank you so much for hanging out with us and uh, throwing a couple bucks our way every month. Uh, we love doing fun stuff for you guys. We had a conversation about the kind of the beginning of award season uh, here in late November, early December. Um, and uh, Courtney and I are both now getting deluged with screeners that we have to watch. So we kind of <laughs> talked about uh, uh, where we're at with that um, and talked a little bit about how we see it, the Oscar race shaking down, award season shaking down, just kind of some of those pre-pre-thoughts. I mean, Oscars are still four months away, a third of the year away. Wow. Um, so When you put it like that. One, two, and three. And yet it will be here before you know it. Three months away. Sorry, a quarter of the year. Actually, three months away. Uh, it, yes, and yet we'll be here before you know it. Anyways, we talked about all that stuff on uh, the pre-show, which is available to our Sif Pop members uh, at certain levels. So if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash Uh I did want to mention also during this... Uh, that we are going to attempt as much as we can to institute a posting schedule with the content for our members. Now, if you have, if you are a Sif Pop member, you not only get the pre-shows in your own podcast feed, you get the main shows in that feed as well without ads. 
So if the ads annoy you, those kind of things, um, that is there as well. We are going to attempt to also make sure we get our Sif Pop members the show on Monday afternoon, and then it will go live for everybody else Tuesday morning. So you also should have the show a day early um, with the new posting schedule. So wanted to let you know that you'll have the main show Monday afternoon. You should have the pre-show Tuesday morning when the main show launches publicly. So um, so that is the posting schedule goals for our amazing Sif Pop members. Again, if you want to check it all out, it starts at three bucks a month. Um, that's at patreon.com slash Pop. And thank you so much for keeping us going. We really do appreciate it. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's get to our best ever challenge. We're going to go with an up-and-coming unknown director named Steven Spielberg. We're going to go with best ever. Is, is he new? Yeah. He may not even. I know it was hard to find five movies that this guy has done, but yeah. uh, but yes. Um, Spielberg I want movies. But good things for this up-and-comer. <clears throat> we will go from number five to number one. We will go uh, around, around Robin style. And if you have a movie... That is higher in your list than someone else mentions it. Let's say Andrew mentions a movie you have at number two at number five, uh, then you trump that. So basically, you just say, We're going to wait to talk about that till it's in my list because I have it higher and I will go. Trump! I will play that uh, sound effect. So, uh, all right. Does it make sense? Courtney, kind of know what, what we're going with? We'll uh, we'll let you kick it off. What is your number five best ever Steven Spielberg movie? I think number five goes to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ooh, Obviously, this nice. is kickoff for the Indiana Jones quintilogy. <laughs> it will be. It will be It will soon. be, yeah. Dial yeah. of madness what was it? dial of destiny dial of, de- dial a, of death. you gotta get that alliteration in there it's such a horrible death. title it's such a- <laughs> uh yeah it'll be five movies uh yeah tell us about raiders it's in my honor you know I, I feel like i i feel like raiders again kicks off this uh original trilogy when you watch the films um there's just so much to it that sets 
what will be the course that these other movies chart. And I feel like when you look at just the original trilogy, um, people tend to think, oh, Last Crusade is the best, and people don't really, eh, Temple of Doom, eh. But for me, I feel like Raiders is, it's the loss or the, the new hope of the trilogy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's everything's new. You're kicking it off. You're getting to know Indy. Um, it starts the, the trope of the, the boulder falling down and him running away from it. I, 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 that's why, why I put it at my number five. It's, 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 it's a good beginning point for this legendary franchise. Ah, uh, yes. I love Raiders. Uh, I believe we will have more from Indiana Jones from Andrew and I uh, yeah. on our list at some point. Uh, You'll have Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Exactly. Crystal Skull. Yeah. Yeah. Me, right? We don't want to spoil, spoil it. it. Yeah. Come on. Let us get there. I was waiting for the sound effect. The <laughs> oh, sound effect. okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Aaron. that is number five from Courtney. I'll go next. Uh, I have Saving Private Ryan Aaron. at number five. Yeah. Hit it. All right, you you have it higher. I get it. Uh, Andrew, what do you have at number five? I have the 2005 film Munich. Ooh, good choice. Eric Bana, Daniel Craig, Siren Hines, and Jeffrey Rush. I mean, this movie came out of nowhere for me. Um, right around the time I was just getting out of high school, I was in college. And uh, my, my friends from high school were like, hey, come back to town. We're all going to go see the new Steven Spielberg movie. I had no idea he made a new movie. And I sat down to watch it, and I was expecting something that I'd seen from him before, like uh, a big, grandiose film like Jurassic Park or you know any of these movies that we're going to have on our list here. But when I sat down to watch Munich, I realized how just not Steven Spielberg this movie is. He's really stretching his abilities to show his range. And it's it's a tense, you know, white-knuckling movie the entire time. You never feel at ease at once during this movie. Also, the fact that, you know, it's based on actual events that happened during the Munich Olympics in 72 and how Israel responded after that. It's such a just... It's an intimate movie because it feels very personal. Even if you're not Jewish and you're watching this movie, you're like, this can't stand. Something needs to happen about this. And the response is, it's it's amazing. This whole movie's amazing. Yeah. Munich's really, really good. Uh, if, if it's if it's gone by you, make sure you check it out. Yeah, uh, Courtney, I think we are to your number four. Uh, number four, I have Catch Me If You Ooh, Can. Good choice. So close to making my list. There, there are just so many good scenes in this film. It's so film, good. But I it's feel my like, number six, easy, for yeah. sure. It's so good. Right, and it, it shows that Steven Spielberg's not just the guy who's making memorable movies in the 70s. This is the guy who's making good films in the 80s, the 90s, mm -hmm. the early 2000s. Yeah. I mean, but but my favorite scene by far, uh, and really you, you cut this down to the chemistry between Tom Hanks and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, is when he... He walks out of the hotel bathroom and Tom Hanks thinks he's got him and he does, but then he's able to bluff his way out with the, the wallet full of coupons. And he goes, I just got to run this down to the car real quick. And gosh, it's, it's such a good movie. Easily. That's my favorite scene too. Easily. Yeah, Never so question the man in a striped suit. No, yeah. no. So good. Good choice. Good choice. Good choice. Uh, my number four is minority report. 
uh, in at number Ooh, four. Love this movie. Um, Man, I Spielberg's love made movie. a few good movies, hasn't he? He makes good films. It was funny. <laughs> uh, one of my kids, I think, we were watching the the Fableman screener, and uh, one of my kids said, um, "I mean, Spielberg made you know one good movie. Really, what has he done?" And I said, "I started listing movies, and he went, okay, I was wrong.' Yeah, <laughs> he, just, he just didn't have. <laughs> well, at least they made yeah. one good movie immediately." Uh, in his mind, uh, the one good Steven Spielberg movie, uh, I think, was Jurassic Park. I think that was the one he was he was thinking of. But uh, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> Minority Report is among them. Um, yes. I love this movie. Uh, I I think there's so many cool ideas and philosophical conundrums in this film, uh, which is always going to be fun for me. So yeah, I love uh, Minority Report. It is my number four. Uh, Andrew, what is your number four? Uh, probably get trumped. Schindler's List. Trump. Yep, there yep. we go. That's gonna that's gonna get trumped. Uh, what is your number three, Courtney? Um, I actually for for number three, I have the uh, Amistad. Mm. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Didn't even make my honorable mentions. Uh, tell us what you love about Amistad. You know, uh, this was one of the movies that they showed us in high school. Um, one of my civics or history classes. And, you know, it's, you know, the experience when your history class or whatever busts out a movie, you're going to watch it over three days. And I just remember at the end of class, because, you know, class is like, what, 45 to 50 minutes Mm -hmm. in in high school. Um, I remember just remembering at the end of every class, walking away going, man, I I really want to see what happens next. (laughs) And because, you know, we didn't have Netflix at the time Mm -hmm. or I didn't... uh, have the ability to just go down to the video store and grab it. Uh, I had to wait until the next day, sure. come back to civics. Here's another piece of it. Leave. Wonder what's going to happen next. Come back. And, and it's just that model for this <laughs> dramatic of a story and the legendary performances they have in it. I mean, it's, we talk about brutal movies too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, this is obviously one of them deals with the country's original sin. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people who would put it in their top five, but for me, it's, it's always left such a lasting impact because of its, you know, historical themes and, and the brutal performances they have in it. It's, I think it should be on at least everybody's watch list at least Mm, once. Yes. Fair. hundred percent. Uh, all right. Uh, my number three, I think would be next. Uh, this is where I have Schindler's list, uh, at number three. Uh, Courtney, is it getting trumped or we can talk about it now? It is you go ahead and talk about hey. it. Let's talk about Schindler's List. Uh talk about a movie that's hard to watch twice. Um yeah. you know, uh this is definitely one of them, but it is so impactful, so affecting. Um Ray Fines is just uh mind blowingly uh evil, evil in this movie. Yeah. And I just I can never forget um his like trying to figure out what forgive like what grace is like where he's like uh i pardon you and then he kills him anyway like there's just so many things in this movie that uh that really bring home everything that steven spielberg was was trying to uh trying to do um the choice to to film it in black and white um you know was uh i think a good one in this case uh we get on movies sometimes for unnecessarily going black and white as some sort of artistic choice. But here I think it is uh, definitely a story choice, a creative choice. Um, I think so. it saves the audience too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Because if you were to see the full color and the realization of what is going on, I think it would it would be that much more difficult to watch. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep. Uh, Andrew, you had it at four, so yes. go ahead and talk about it a little bit. If you want. Uh, yeah, rewatchability, honestly. Uh, there's a difference between, you know, when you say movie's not rewatchable, that doesn't mean it's not important. Uh, quite the op- opposite, in fact. I think uh, most of the movies that are not rewatchable are the ones that just hit that much harder. And uh, But I think that, yeah, like you said, Ray Fiennes is the epitome of evil. And uh, Liam Neeson, uh, obviously, the uh, I could have gotten one more scene is one of the most iconic mm-hmm. scenes in film history. Yep. Uh, I actually just recently, I say recently, within the last two years, rewatched Schindler's List. And uh, yeah, it's just as difficult the second time to watch as mm-hmm. it is first. Yep. There you go. That's Schindler's List. Uh, Andrew, you're number three. Uh, might get trumped. Actually, I think it has to get trumped. So, uh, just get ready with that button, Aaron, because <laughs> this is where I have Last Crusade. Trump! Indeed. Yep. Indeed. Uh, all right. That brings us to our number twos. Courtney, what do you got at number two? Uh, this is where I had Saving Private Ryan. Aaron, actually. If you would Damn. do the honors. Wow. Thank all you. right. We'll have to wait one more time. Uh, <laughs> my number two also might get trumped. Uh, my number two is Jurassic Park. Same. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, this just means we kind of agree on this upper echelon stuff. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, what is your number two? Jurassic Park. Trump. <laughs> yeah. So we're getting good use out of that. Yeah, Everybody's number two is trumped. Courtney, tell us your number one. It's Jurassic, it is Jurassic Park. So at number one for Courtney, at number two for Andrew and I, uh, Courtney, talk about it. You know, you talk about movies that define your childhood. Yes. Uh, as a 90s kid, Jurassic Park was the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like despite the many sequels, most of which were highly disappointing, uh, this, this set the tone for dinosaur movie. I mean... You can't, outside of, what, Raptor Island and a handful of other truly terrible films, there's not a lot of movies out there that are going to deal with dinosaurs in such a, such a manner. I mean, and, and it took the dinosaurs, made it uh, a monster movie. Um, you had great performances from your three, three central characters, plus the kids. Um, there's just so much to love. I, I really love the use of practical effects over CGI. Yes, uh, any yes. movie where heavily relying on CGI, I'm going to dock it points. Um, but this was a movie where they took the time to invest in animatronics and put things that were actually there for the actors to react to. Um, and I, I appreciated that. I wish more films did that today. Mm. You know, the fact that there are models of the Velociraptors of the T-Rex of different things that they were looking at and reacting to. It's, I don't think there's a single thing uh, negative that I can say about this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it is a matter of tiny degrees between my number one and number two. Um, in fact, I think they're right next to each other on my top movies of all time list. I think they're, um, <laughs> and they're both in my top 30. Uh, yeah. movies of all time i think um so so yeah jurassic park is uh phenomenal it's it's just it's quintessential propulsive storytelling 
Like it is, if you want to watch the epitome of a movie that doesn't let the audience go, it's Jurassic Park, and Spielberg owns the audience the entire time, has them right in the palm of his hands, and there are so many scenes in this movie that are are just incredible tension vehicles. Um, the moment you know the T Rex is like you know not in its pen, it's just from from that moment. There's just this incredible tension. The kitchen scene is just the, the raptors in the kitchen scene is probably the one you would pick for the textbook. Like if you were putting together a class, like this is this is the scene. To oh, show how to how do that's tension. Done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and if you think about it in many ways, it's kind of the opposite of Jaws. Mm-hmm. If you, you watch Jaws, you don't see the shark for too much of the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's well hidden for a good chunk of it. Right. Jurassic Park, you get to see the dinosaurs for the entire thing. Right. Uh, there's no where are they at? They're right there in your yeah. face. Yeah. I think Jurassic Park. There's a little Park- bit of where are they at, but it's used uh, sparingly and uh, and really really well. I think Jurassic yeah. Park is what Spielberg can do with Jaws on a budget. <laughs> right. Because the animatronic yes. for Jaws kept breaking; otherwise, the shark would have been everywhere in the movie. You know, it, it is interesting. One of the things Spielberg's career, I think, proves, as does many directors' career, is that great movies are often a result of the obstacles. They are often a result of the barriers and the creativity to operate within the barriers that you have uh, is is the genius of filmmaking uh, in many ways. So, yeah. yeah, I see that here as well. Andrew, some thoughts? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned how close they are on your list because that is, uh, made me look at mine. So right now I have Jurassic Park at number 18 on my list of movies of all time. And Saving Private Ryan is 16. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're right there. It's funny because I have four movies, and this is what I want to bring up about Jurassic Park. I have four movies right next to each other that I feel changed the way movies were made. I think Jurassic Park changed the way movies are made. The Matrix changed the way movies are made. Saving Private Ryan changed the way movies are made. And Inception changed the way movies are made. And I have them all four right next to each other. Mm -hmm. So that's my biggest takeaway. And like Courtney, Jurassic Park defined my childhood. It, Mm -hmm. It set me on the path to who I am now. Yeah, I was totally a child when Jurassic Park came out, too. Yeah, 93, yeah, what yeah, were you, 37, 38? Me too, me too. No, no. Right, you, you you die the sides of your hair gray Thank you, like Courtney. Dr. Strange, so right? somebody gets it. Yeah, yeah just just right. a little bit of bleaching on the sides and on my goatee. You um, know what's funny beard, is so. uh, he actually looks like, uh, 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 what's his name? Grant, not Grant, but... Uh, the guy, I'm ruining this bit. Who's the guy who owns the island? Uh, Hammond. I was going to say, with, yes, it, when he yes. doesn't dye his hair, he looks just like John Hammond. Man, yes, that bit yes. could have been so funny. Yeah, it really was. You yeah. were on the road to hilarity oh. there, uh, for sure. No, uh, if you just would have spared no expenses. Yes, you spared too many expenses, for sure. Uh, all right, let's move on to my number one. Uh, all our number ones should be pretty obvious. Mine is yeah. The Last Crusade. Yep. Um, I love this movie. Uh, this movie defined my childhood, uh, so that'll give you a sense of, of how much older I am. But um, yeah, just a little bit. Uh, the and I think that's part of why I like Last Crusade more than Raiders is because I was a little young when Raiders came out, 
And I watched Last Crusade first. It was my first Indiana Jones movie, and it's amazing. The Sean Connery stuff is so good. Um, the father son stuff, the river Phoenix stuff, like the, just that, Mm. that back and forth is, is so amazing. Um, and I think it has like some of the best puzzle solving adventure stuff in the series as well. Not to mention an incredible climax, uh, that involves, you know, making a terrible hard decision and, um, what shouldn't be a hard decision, but, um, but you know, sometimes you just, you, you, you get, you get hypnotized by your precious. Uh, so, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of amazing stuff going on here and, uh, I love the last crusade. Uh, you had it at three, Andrew, is that right? Uh, Yeah. Sure so what is so some thoughts on the the last crusade because we're we're both in the you know this is the best indie movie it is now. yeah um i will say that uh, you having this at number one i will say that you have chosen wisely <laughs> thank you so, thank well you. i may have chosen poorly um no uh totally agree on the uh the climax of this movie and the three trials that he goes through each one being better than the last is so fantastic and then the actual grail room itself it's just such an iconic scene like a a, a set mm-hmm. um yeah and I, I think we've said this a trillion times whenever we talk about this movie because we talk about it almost every week it seems sometimes mm-hmm. but uh yeah the dynamic between connery and ford is great because that's how you humanize a character you put a parental figure in front of them and watch them revert to who they were as a kid it's uh I'm going to consider this not spoilery, but I have to mention it because it's fresh in my brain. It's a movie that you haven't seen yet. But uh, Inaritu did a, a movie called Bardo this year, and uh, it is uh, insane in some of the ways it visualizes things. But I wanted to mention it because you mentioned that, you know, put a parental figure. There's a moment where he talks to his father, and the whole movie is kind of very oneric. It's very uh, dreamlike, right? So... There's there's this this moment where he's talking to his father and the character his character starts literally shrinking he has the same adult head but the body <laughs> starts shrinking and by the the end of it he is child sized with his adult head it looks like a bobblehead kind of a, a effect but it's because but it's because <laughs> Courtney is now looking at the screener she got for uh, for that. Uh, so yeah, so there's that it's, but it, it's this perfect visualization of that concept you're talking about, you know, how we become children when we're around our parents and, uh, and anyhow, it made, made me think of that. So maybe we'll talk about Bardo later this year, but, um, but that scene seemed appropriate. So yeah, there you go. Thoughts on the last crusade, uh, which brings us to your number one, Andrew, Yeah, which is. Jaws. No, Saving Private yeah. Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. Before you, before you start into this, I do want to mention, and Courtney, I'll explain this to you. Nick in the chat says, Saving Private Ryan. I wonder if they ever found her. Uh, oh, my God. And- oh, Nick. Why would you do this to me? <laughs> All right, go ahead. This, this is based on a uh, best ever challenge we did when the, the category was best ever movies that have a female name in the title. And I chose Saving Private Ryan as one of my best ever movies because Ryan is a name that both genders have. And I got taken to task uh, and told I had broken the rules and it became a big thing. There was a vote and everything. And you got uh, vetoed. 
I got vetoed and I was not allowed to choose that. And I, to this day, think that is a fine answer for that category and that Ryan is a woman's name. Uh, Ryan in, is in a woman's cases. name, but it's not the name. <laughs> Ryan in the movie is a woman. <laughs> it's not the best ever challenge of characters named Ryan in the m- movie that are men. Yes, it's, it is. Or women. It, no, it isn't. It's the best ever movies with women's with, names in the title. And Ryan, you just said no, it's no, a woman's name. But it's so not. There's a woman's name in the title. So that goes in the category. No, it's women apostrophe <laughs> S. Women owning the name. So the person has to be a woman for it's a work in sure, the title. The person has to be, but not the character. There's no in in. Well, he's not a kid. He's not a woman either. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. It's not talking about the character. It's talking about women's names. <laughs> Ryan is a woman's name. You just yes, said it. A, Ryan is a woman's name, but it's not the name of the character. So there is no Ryan it's in the about movie. The character in the title. There is no Ryan. There's no Ryan woman. <laughs> anyway, so now, this movie now you know is so good. Gordon. This movie is oh so good. I love this movie so much. Um, yeah, Spielberg, he has the ability to make some movies that just stick with you for the rest of your life, either in a good way or a completely depressing way. This is one of the depressing ways, just like Schindler's List. Uh, he somehow, I think the only person that I can think that comes close to making movies feel, or war movies feel as real and traumatic as Spielberg is probably Mel Gibson. But, uh, I think that Spielberg has a way of making these I don't know if it's the way that he uh, downgrades the or the color gradient to make it seem, you know, more gritty or if it's his uh, uh, uh you know, handheld cam, you know, motion for a lot of the scenes uh or it's the way that he can really like the downtime in war, especially like there's a scene where they're all trying to sleep in a church and uh uh I forget his name now, but uh, he played the medic in the movie. And he was telling the story about how uh, his mom would come home early uh, from work to just, just to talk to him. And uh, he it's there's just it's just him telling the, the story. And it's Giovanni Urbisi, by the way. It's one of the most painful just him telling a when I was a kid, my mom used to come home early just to talk to me, and I pretended like I was asleep. And it's just the regret in his voice of like, I I could die out here, and that's one that's the last thing I'm gonna think of is how I should have talked to my mom. It's so painful. It's so good. Um, it is other than Jurassic Park, the only movie all three of us had on our list, I believe. Um, mm. I had it at number five. Courtney, you had it at three, two. two. You had it at number two, and Andrew, you had it at number one. Um, yeah, Courtney, do you have any additional thoughts? You know, I think to this day, I mean, even when you take into account um, Christopher Nolan's war movie that um, came out just a couple years ago, that mm-hmm. the name Dunkirk. is eluding me right now. Yeah, even when you take into account Dunkirk, even today, I think Saving Private Ryan still contains the most warlike scene that gives you the the best picture of of what it was like captured on film that's not you know this, an actual this scene year's uh, all film. quiet on the western front is giving it a run for its money but, it is um, right but, yeah. it is um but i mean just again going back to high school uh history class when we get to world war ii the teacher busts out saving private ryan and goes i'm only going to show you the first normandy 15 minutes of this yeah. film <sighs> 
Yeah. And uh, parents have to sign a waiver saying they can watch it. Yeah. Right. Parents have to sign a waiver. Um, and just, you know, the class is silent and the teacher can't get anybody to answer oh. questions after that because it's just that sets on you. And that's, that's the whole movie. Yep. Yeah. Um, that and that and you know the the other thing that randomly juts out to me is Vin Diesel. He is person. in this movie. What? Sure, not for long, but he's in this movie. Yep, yep. And Amy Adams is in uh, Catch Me If You Can for yeah, a hot second. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, yeah, Saving Private Ryan is uh, amazing and easily one of the the best movies ever to have a women, woman's name in it. So, uh, ah. so yeah, it's. <laughs> All right. You realize he lives closer to you, right? That's true. Can, that's true. He can, he can he can come over and we wow. can settle this. It's this in the Good Dinosaur. These are these are our our biggest uh, battles. What uh, two movies Simple. to have like be the biggest rivals? <laughs> Saving Private Ryan, one of the most esteemed movies ever to grace any cinema ever. Mm-hmm. And the Good Dinosaur is <laughs> the, the as the other movie that you and I we just ah. Yeah, we argued about for a while. Yeah, we did. Uh, all right. For honorable mentions, I really just kind of picked ones I wanted to, to highlight because you really could just. <laughs> I didn't even bother making movies. an honorable mention list. Okay, no, fair we- enough. Uh, Courtney, did you list any honorable mentions or anything? Um, I, I just I had a really hard time not putting the terminal on here. It's a fair. It's a fair one again, and I like that choice. That's the same kind of things that I'll talk about with my honorable mentions, or just these movies that maybe not necessarily many people uh, go to when they're talking about favorite Spielberg, but that that we really really like. I think it's wild and says something about the man's career that none of us had Jaws in our top five. Like often considered to be his best movie by most movie lovers, and none of us had it in the top five. That's not a testament to Jaws to any of us saying Jaws isn't that good. It's just a testament to this man has made so many movies that that we love that it's hard to include them all. Um, well, and I was I was telling uh, as I was putting this list together uh, again, talking to my wife about it. I'm getting ready to go on this podcast. Got my top five Steven Spielberg movies, and and she said. You're not putting ET right. in there? There's and another I, one. <laughs> I said, I know, but there's only five. <laughs> and the fact that nobody had ET when that is, sure. I feel like, his quintessential movie that everybody yeah. thinks of with it's not Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the ones I wanted to bring up, Tintin, I like more than most people. Um, I think Tintin is really, really good. Um, and Lincoln is another one. I was going to mention Lincoln. Just kind of gets lost in the shuffle for some reason, but it's a really incredible I mean, film. Now, a lot of that has to do with DDL, but... He built yeah. a time machine and went back and got Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln is actually in, in that this movie. movie. It's amazing. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, and then I really, really liked his version of West Side Story uh, last Ooh. year. I thought that was really, really good. Yeah. And uh, War of the Worlds is another one that I, I really, really enjoyed. I, so. swear that you, I swear I thought you were going to have War of the Worlds on your list for two weeks in a row. I really Nope. Did. Just didn't quite make it. It wouldn't have even been my sixth because Catch Me If You Can would have been my sixth. Um, so... Where the world is, as a movie, I feel like the, was it 2002 is when that came out? That was like 2005, yeah. Yeah. Oh, five, okay. But I mean, War of the Worlds, if you didn't have Steven Spielberg behind it, that would have been an awful movie, I feel like. (laughs) He he definitely made it good. He he pulls it through. for sure. Uh, all right. Well, let's finish off with some buried treasure, guys. Uh, what's that one thing in any area of culture you want to make sure people know about? Courtney, you're our guest, so you will finish us off. Andrew, kick hey. us off. What uh, What's your buried treasure this week? I'm going to go with season three of the Oroville. 
It oh, okay. didn't. It didn't start off all that strong. It really. I didn't. agree. And uh, I was kind of hesitant. I'm like, oh no, are we going to get any kind of return to grace? The the after like the first three episodes, it gets so good. Like it's probably some of the best episodes, um, of the show that they've ever done. What I will say is one of my big negatives for this sh- uh, season is they kind of lost the levity that the show had like during the first season that I love so much. Like this, it was a great show or and it was a great Star Trek show knockoff, but it was also a great comedy. Mm-hmm. They've really tried to separate themselves from the comedy aspect. And it's just a, a great Star Trek knockoff now, which is kind of upsetting, but it's still a really good show. There's probably some of the best episodes of the entire show are in this third season now. I agree with everything you said, Andrew. Like I have the exact same feelings. Really? I didn't think I was going to enjoy it after the first couple episodes. I was like, oh, man, this is such a bummer. I'm not really enjoying this. And then it just kind of hit a stride towards the end where I was like, oh, cool. The show that I love is back. The other part of the the drama comedy thing, this season is, I think, more along the lines of what Seth MacFarlane wanted to do with this show. I think from the very beginning, he wanted it to be more dramatic, mm. but was was kind of pushed to say, no, 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 you have to emphasize the comedy. You're Seth MacFarlane. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so you can definitely feel that shift in the season. But I think the, it finishes really, really strong. Yeah. So, um, you know, and now we've got like Strange New Worlds, which kind of fills – you know, this kind of classic Star Trek feel that we've been missing. And you've got Lower Decks that fill, fills the Star Trek yeah. comedy thing. So, like, this play, this show's place in the pop culture landscape isn't quite as needed now because there's actual Star Trek stuff that's doing some of the things that it did. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad it finished strong. So that's a good choice. Yeah. Good choice. Um, my buried treasure for this week is a documentary on Disney+. Plus the National Geographic channel on Disney Plus called Fire of Love. Uh, Fire of Love is about two volcanologists. Is that how it's said? Something like that. Yeah, like people who study volcanoes. Yeah. Yeah, volcanologists. or or Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a story of two Vulcans, uh, Katia Kraft and Maurice Kraft. Um, they were married uh, in both loved volcanoes, um, and it is some of the most impressive, interesting volcano footage uh, that you've seen was captured by them. And this documentary kind of goes into their passion for... Um, catching those things how that passion turned to um to helping people saving people's lives giving people you know figuring out warning systems for things like everest things like they they divide volcanoes into two categories the reds and the grays and or maybe they say the oranges and the grays um the oranges aren't really that dangerous as long as you don't just like go swimming in the lava uh, the the oranges are for the most part e- easier to control observation on. The grays are the dangerous ones because those are the ones that explode and create huge mudslides and ash falls and just you know propel 
giant chunks of rock at hundreds miles you know per hour um so they transitioned a lot from studying the oranges to studying the grays because those were the ones that were that were uh, most dangerous. And if you don't know their story, I won't give any of the rest away. But yeah, um, it's uh, it's definitely a, a story I think that is worth experiencing in this way. The documentary is a li- the tone is a little um, slow for me. I, I I know that's weird to say with a documentary, but I, I did find myself like. It really likes to linger, and there are times when I like it because the photos and the videos are beautiful, and then there are times where I'm like, let's just kind of move on to whatever the next chapter is, um, but it's it's really worth a watch, um, and it's on uh, Disney+. Plus. So, uh, Did they go over Krakatoa? Absolutely. All? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It covered like, pretty out. much any big volcanic thing that's happened over the last 50 years um it it goes over so um so yeah that's fire of love on disney plus um what do you want to talk about courtney so you know because my day job is in news obviously news uh takes up a lot of my brain and this week uh rail workers have obviously captured a lot of headlines and so i wanted to talk about uh my favorite train movie that I don't feel like a lot of people talk about and it is unstoppable which came out in 2010 and this is a movie that again I just feel like flies under the radar for so many people um but it's one I bust out at least once a year Chris Pine Denzel Washington fantastic performances granted you know the the sequence and the events obviously very hyped up and fictionalized a bit from what actually happened here but I, I think it's a movie that, again, if you're a popcorn junkie, it's definitely worth watching because they they do such a good job at hyping it up and making it such an energetic flick. You just Tony said Aaron's Scott, favorite thing. He loves it when people bring up Unstoppable. I love Unstoppable. Uh, Tony Scott, man, he doesn't miss. Um, like it, it's just. There's just we talked about it with Jurassic Park. There's a way to make movies where you just understand what the audience is feeling and experiencing, and just pull them along with every new moment and every new experience. And this is one of those movies. It's just so well paced and so uh, entertaining. Um, I just yeah, I love Unstoppable. So I'm I'm always glad to talk about uh, Unstoppable. So uh, thank you for bringing it up. It's a good one. I got something funny to bring up real quick. I was looking sure. up the the fire of love, and I'm like, I think I've heard of these people before. And then once I found out what happened uh, or who they really were, I'm like, oh yeah, they should be in the Werner Herzog documentary, Into the Inferno. They are. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah, yes, so. they definitely are. <laughs> uh, yeah, Unstoppable's great. Um, if you're looking to watch it, I believe you can rent it uh, on the streaming services uh, and find it there. Uh, I don't think it's streaming free anywhere currently. but um, Yeah, that's that's the one thing that always frustrates me is I'll, I'll try to find it. And I'm like, you know, if you subscribe to Hulu and HBO Max and Netflix and Disney Plus, I feel like you should have every yeah. movie ever but you don't it's so There's frustrating it, it is one of the most frustrating things about the the streaming era so far is that the content just isn't all there like it, it's and as a movie lover it's just like why like, is, it, is it part of you know the only company that's doing it really is disney disney's the only one that's like here's all of our stuff 
everybody else is like, here's some of our stuff. This month, this stuff's going away, and this stuff is coming. And she's like, why? Just put it all on there. What are we doing here? It's it's It always happens to me with Unstoppable and with The Last Unicorn. I, oh, my God. I can never find that on any streaming yeah. service either. And when anytime I want to bust it out... I got to go rent it from Amazon. I should just get a physical. Yes, I haven't I thought about The Last Unicorn since I was a kid. <laughs> I love that movie growing up. Bonus Buried Treasure, The Last Unicorn. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Unstoppable is available for rent on the streaming services or on like Apple and Google and, and wherever you buy your movies. Uh, Fire of Love is on Disney Plus in the Orville. Uh, new season is on Hulu if you want to check that out. Well, we did it, guys. Yeah, we did. We managed to do a podcast. Woo. Congratulations. Uh, the the podcast lava was flowing, and we managed to survive. Uh, yes. So congratulations to all of us. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today for Sif Pop. It is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about other shows on the network at studiodna.media or by searching Studio DNA in your podcast player. Huge thanks to Andrew for hanging out again today. Thank you, buddy. i got to kill a fly in this room. Uh, you, you definitely have a fly flying around. Yeah. Uh, big thanks to producer Phil for producing the audio and video show. Thanks, man. Uh, much love to Courtney Lanning Woo! for coming by this week. Thank you so much. Uh, Hope you had Thanks fun. Thanks for having me. Courtney, it was great to have you on the show. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, what do you want to promote? Tell people where to go find Courtney Landing stuff. You know, um, I've got a couple books and my movie reviews and everything. You can find them all at CourtneyLanning.com. What are the books about? So they are actually set down in the Ozarks. They're just uh, a couple of YA fantasy books um, that I've set right in northwest Arkansas where... Um, mm-hmm. Where I spent a lot of my time in life. You were really just Uh, a hop, skip, and jump away from us, weren't you? Yep. That is at uh, CourtneyLanning.com. Two L's in Lanning. Uh, Courtney with a C, Lanning.com, if you want to check that out. Uh, Thank you to our Sif Pop members for being amazing. Uh, You make the magic happen. Starts at three bucks a month. You can check out all the details at patreon.com slash Sif Pop. Really appreciate you guys. There's a lot of ways to connect with the podcast. You can leave a comment, a rating, or a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Um, and I've been—I saw a couple people post their uh, Spotify, whatever Spotify does, where it has the podcast that you listen to. Thank you for doing that. Uh, that's really really cool. Um, and if you want to email us, you can email us at feedback at sifpop.com. And finally, if you're having a good time, your movie-loving friends will probably like the show, too. So make sure you let them know about it and that listening is much easier than making an exciting movie with terrible horizon placement. Uh, we will be back next week with Pinocchio and more. So we will see you next week to chat a little bit uh, about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio uh, next week. I mean, so it, we'll it, it, it can't be worse. It can't be worse. <laughs> it cannot. It cannot. <laughs> All right, catch you next week, guys. Bye. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, 
Did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.